What happens when a hoax sticks around pop culture long enough that its origins get forgotten and people start to think that it's real history? This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, everyone. So here's a little bit of inside baseball. Lee is sad. Oh, I didn't know we were going to bring that up. Yeah. No, but I realized <laughs> after we talked about it that, oh, that's the perfect introduction. And what's interesting to me is this. Lee is two different kinds of sad. And I think we're going to talk about both of those sadnesses today. The first kind of sad has to do with bees and pollinators. Yep. Very, very quickly explain your sadness about bees and pollinators. Well, I've been geeking out on pollinators and native plant species and how to support them. And it turns out that they are in a catastrophic state these days. They are declining at an incredible rate. And it turns out that a lot of the initiatives we are uh, doing to help them don't help so much. That's, That's classic us. Yes. We try to help. Classic we us. We screw up. So... You're, you're sad about, I mean, that, that is a problem. Pollinators are so crucial for the natural ecosystem. They're also crucial for us. Yeah, because, because without, we're out here in the natural ecosystem. And without pollinators, there's no food. Right, and we eat food, right? Yeah, Yeah. sometimes. Yeah. You're sad and discouraged about the state of the natural ecosystem and worried. Yes. And you're also sad and discouraged and worried about the information ecosystem. Yep. Now, we're going to talk about that one later. I want to talk about the natural ecosystem first. Okay. So how hopeless are you getting on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being totally hopeless, 1 being totally Pollyanna happy? Say between 8 and 9. That is getting very sad and hopeless. Yeah. And so you start to wonder, I mean, is there even anything that we can do about this situation? Or have we reached a point of no return? Have we reached this kind of tipping point where we're not going to be able to come back from this? But... I've got a solution for you. Okay. Well, wait, I've got three, I got three alternatives for you. Okay. The, no, the first two don't make any sense at all. So forget about those. <laughs> I've got a third alternative for you. Yes. Okay. What if we just get the hell off this planet? Right. And go somewhere else. Right. That is a segue, no less. That's an intro and a segue and everything wrapped up together. Uh, that's exactly what we're talking about is alternative three. I wanted to plug the research of Emily Louise, who has a YouTube channel called Weird Reads. She did an incredible job really tracing the history of Alternative 3 in a two and a half hour YouTube documentary, which is a sub-project of another documentary that she was actually working on. That's amazing. She is amazing. And if this podcast does not satiate your appetite for alternative three conspiracies and their history, I strongly encourage you to go check out Emily Louise's Weird Reads on YouTube. She is really fantastic. And a lot of what I'm about to tell you about alternative three and its history in the 80s comes from her research. And alternative three is something that Nathan and I should have known about for a very long time. And it's quite startling to discover something that has had such a large cultural impact so late in our investigation of UFOs and conspiracies. Because this is a documentary titled Alternative 3, which came out on Anglia Television in Great Britain in 1977. And it was a report it was a science report, and it claimed that there was a plan by world governments, not just one in particular. All working together. All working together, mostly spearheaded, though, by the Americans and the Russians. Yep. Well, the Soviets. The Soviets at that point. Now I'm doing it wrong in the yeah, other yeah, direction. Yeah. We were at the... Precipice. I was going to say precipice, and then I was like, is that the right word it for this? It is the right word. That we were at the precipice of a massive climate catastrophe, and that there had been a number of alternatives discussed amongst world leaders, none of which were going to, according to scientists and the consensus, work. 
Yeah, Alter- the first two, Alternative 1 and Alternative 2, were so ridiculous, so far-fetched, they weren't even worth discussing. So Alternative 3 said this documentary was to get off planet Earth and go to Mars. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we need to talk a little bit about this documentary. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the documentary itself. We'll start there. And then look more importantly at its impacts following its release. And it also becomes a book. So there was a book that was published a year after with the same title. No, we'll start off by saying that you can watch this documentary. Yes, you can. It's available on YouTube. Yep, just search for Alternative 3 Documentary. Right. And look for something that looks hopelessly 1970s British. It's a fun watch, actually. Uh, but the whole thing is I available. Mean, the, the haircuts, the outfits, the cars. This is the most British thing I've ever seen. And I used to watch old 1970s Doctor Who. Yeah, it's so nostalgic in yeah. a way. So what is Alternative 3? Let's, let's just get into the actual documentary itself. It was released on June 20th, but it was supposed to have been released on April 1st. April 1st, you say? Yes, April 1st, I say. Here's a general rule. (laughs) Things that are supposed to come out on April 1st, we should apply a greater degree of skepticism to. And why is that? It was April Fool's Day. Oh, yeah. And it was a joke. The documentary was a hoax. It was a joke, but it was a very straight-faced joke. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it was a, it was sort of a hoax in the like think about like the War of the Worlds broadcast exactly. from the 1930s. Exactly. Like it, it's it's a it's not a hoax. It's like a it's a fiction. It's a story, but it's put together so that it looks like a newscast. Right. And the newspaper and other publications that would carry say your TV listings for the upcoming week, they went along with this, even though they're not owned by the same media corporation. Their blurbs for this documentary also were very straight-faced. It was, this will be a shocking revelation, and scientists have discovered, etc., etc. The host of the documentary, too, is a well-known science presenter. Right. So, I mean, watching this, the casual viewer turns it on. This is at, like, a time of low information. Right. There, it's you the can't 70s. go online and, like, double-check things. You turn on the TV, and here it is. Here's a person that you know talking about the stuff he normally talks about. Right. But this time, there's this weird twist. Right. It doesn't start out that weird, though, because they begin with a very straightforward question about a scientific brain drain. The premise being that scientists are leaving England in record numbers, and journalists wanted to figure out why this was happening. Why are they going to Australia or America for better jobs, more pay. What is the problem with the conditions of scientific work in England that is making these people decide to leave? But in their investigation of these scientists, they discover, in fact, that something quite sinister and bizarre is going on. They first come onto the trail of something weird when they notice that The scientists who've left, they will correspond with their family for a while, and then suddenly the correspondences will stop. So, for example, a scientist might say, oh, I'm going to Australia to go work for this company. But then, when the film crew contacts that company in Australia, why, that scientist never showed up. Exactly. Hmm. And then when they look at the airplane records, turns out they never even got onto the airplane. That was supposed to take them to Australia. And yet their car is still sitting in the parking lot. Right. Hmm. Abandoned in the parking lot. This is the premise of the documentary, or this is sort of the next stage where they they discover that... That's the hook. That's like, okay, something weird is going on here, but what weird thing is it? Exactly. Well, this is what they try and find out. And they enter this world of a conspiracy in which it's finally revealed by a Dr. Gerstein that, in fact, the world was at the precipice of a global climactic catastrophe. And if you were in England in 1977, this was not an entirely implausible idea. There had just been a real record heat wave the summer before, 
the beginnings of the environmental movement had started, the worry about the greenhouse effect. I mean, in some ways, the documentary is quite prescient. The, the worries that they're talking about, which to some extent did seem like science fiction to some in the late 70s, are things where today you're like, yeah, this yeah, is that, that almost a like little too close for comfort. According to Dr. Gerstein in this documentary, the climate catastrophe was already in 1977, unavoidable. And irreversible. And irreversible. and This planet was done. Exactly. And so, as Nathan said earlier, they had, at this conference in Huntsville, Alabama, they, this is where the, the secret, the, the conspiracy, I guess, was first hatched. They bandied about different alternatives for how to deal with this, which included things like setting off a nuclear bomb in the atmosphere to let out the heat into the universe, that's, which is... That's not how anything works. I know, but it's adorable. You know, it's as we've said, it's a fictional documentary. True. I mean, the whole thing was supposed to be a kind of a, an April Fool's joke. So but a very serious one. They didn't put maybe that much effort into Alternatives 1 and 2, which were supposed to be dismissed anyway. Alternative 3, then, was the idea that, okay, the planet is not savable, Destruction is coming, and what we need to do is ensure the survival of the human race. And the way we're going to do that is by getting a bunch of them to emigrate to Mars. And that... The smart and useful ones. Exactly. So who do you need to immigrate to Mars? Well, you need adults, apparently, according to this documentary. You need adults who are specifically useful for setting up a new civilization. So you got some engineers, you got some medical people, you've got some like biotechnicians, exactly. you've got like construction experts, that kind of thing. Exactly. And this was, according to the thesis of the documentary, the root of the brain drain. So they weren't actually immigrating to America or to Australia. Exactly. They were being whisked off first to the moon and then to Mars. And, and the reason for that is Mars is very far away. If you built a spacecraft on the moon, there's not that much gravity on the moon. It's actually much easier to lift off from the moon than it would be from Earth. Right. So you go, like, you go to the moon first, and then you go to Mars. Right. And this is an idea that has been put forward, that we would build some kind of base on the moon, and then from the moon it's easier to get further into space. Sure. So that, that, that's not that far-fetched. No. I mean, the ideas themselves are... In, in light of science fiction, quite reasonable. Yeah. You know, we're not dealing with stargates or warp drives. We're dealing with, okay, you no, know, we build a base on Big the Big rockets. And then from there we go to Mars and we, I was going to say we would terraform Mars, but it turns out. We'd Marsiform it. It turns out that according to this documentary, Mars actually has an atmosphere and life. So the documentary ends with some as yet undiscovered footage or unreleased footage, super secret. It was contained on a reel of film that if you played it without the right decoding mechanism would just produce static. But if you had the right decoding mechanism, which in the film they called a jukebox, and you ran it through this, and the only people who had this decoding mechanism were NASA. Of course, this is all fictional. This is just the way the documentary presented the information. When you played this reel of film through, what you discovered was an unmanned probe landing on Mars. And this is a very important date, May 2nd, 1962. And what happens is both Russian and Americans have been cooperating, according to this film, and they've landed on Mars and they, and they discover that it is habitable and they even see evidence of life. Yeah, that's how it ends. So, yeah, the, the whole film is this film crew ostensibly going around trying to interview people. And they're always getting a lot of blowback. And a lot of people don't want to talk. Exactly. And some people even go mad in very dramatic scenes where they go to interview somebody and they start, like, crawling around and attacking people. Yeah. Others are inexplicably missing. They can't track them down. Family members are worried about them. A lot of them are smoking pipes. Yeah. So that's the documentary, and most people don't watch the credits of a documentary. If you had watched the credits, 
you would have seen that the people presented in this mockumentary were actors. Like, you know, they give the name of the actor who plays Dr. Gerstein or who plays... Or that American astronaut. Oh, of course. There's uh, Grodin, who is apparently one of the astronauts that landed on the moon. And there's a, a large part of the documentary, part of the documentary is interviewing him, where as he gets progressively more drunk, he also starts revealing more about what he actually saw on the moon. And what he actually saw was that there was already a space station there. There was already a lot of activity there. And the whole space program, according to him, was a smokescreen to hide the transport of important materials for that base that's already up there. Right. So again, to recap this, the argument made in this hoax documentary was that in the early 1960s, the Americans and the Soviets, realizing that the world was doomed, despite it being like the height of the Cold War, decided to work together secretly. Exactly. Well, publicly they had the space race, which was then just a fraud, because by the time the Apollo 11 astronauts landed in 1969, the Americans and the Soviets had already built a base on the moon. Right. And then gone from that moon base to Mars, where they discovered life. Yes. That's, that's wild. That's a wild and, swing. And what's, and what's happening by the time the documentary is being produced or, or, or researched in 76 and then released in 77 is that now it's gone to the next stage. And now we're, we're starting to ferry people out there. Exactly. There are the scientists who are going out there, but there's also another group of people that are being sent out there called batch consignments. And these are regular people who don't amount to much, are not particularly like useful. Us. Exactly. But will be used as slaves. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a big worry about the kind of human rights atrocities that are being perpetrated against them. So that's the documentary. We've said it was supposed to be uh, released on April 1st. So just to really focus in on why we know for certain that this really is a joke. It was supposed to be aired on April Fool's Day. Now, it wasn't aired then because of labor disruptions that were happening in England. So I mean, it was, it was England in the 70s. Exactly. So it was pushed forward to June 20th. The people credited in the credits are actors who, you know, after the documentary were still available. You could still talk to these people. They had not disappeared. Right. The creators of the documentary, are the writers... David Ambrose and Christopher Miles gave interviews afterwards, correctly identifying that, in fact, it was just a hoax, that they came up with the idea, you know, over lunch sometime. Some of the acting is very 70s British acting, like either way over the top. Leave me alone. What's the matter with him? Get them away from me. He's he on acid or something? Just get out of here, will you? Answer our questions. <laughs> way under the top. At the Huntsville Alabama Conference of 1957, my ideas were at last being taken seriously by a small group of senior physicists and government advisors. But by then, of course, it was too late. Yeah, exactly. There's alleged footage of space shuttles, which is very, very clearly from our modern perspective, like at the time, I bet it looked pretty good. From our modern perspective, this is very clearly old-timey 1970s cheap English special effects. Yeah, it's so obviously not real. There's also a historical... An historical? A histor There's also an historical issue with the timeline of this film. They're making the argument that starting in the 1950s, the Soviets and the Americans started working together on this Mars project and had managed to get a probe to Mars by 1962. According to official history, the Soviets didn't manage to get anything into space until the late 50s, when they sent Sputnik and the corpse of a dog and a human into low Earth orbit, which is still far from the moon, let alone Mars. So we should ask ourselves, which version is more likely? The documentary version, that just 15 years after the end of World War II, we had gone from V-2 rockets that could just barely get out of Earth's atmosphere to massive interplanetary vehicles that could safely get all the way to Mars, 
or the official story that states that by the beginning of the 1960s, we were still struggling to get into low orbit. And if there was a secret cooperative space program between the Soviets and the Americans in the 1950s, that means that the Cold War was just a cover. It was just to cover up this secret space program so that people wouldn't find out that the Cold War wasn't a real conflict. But it was a very real conflict. In the 1950s, there was a massive proxy war between the Soviets and the Americans in Korea that was unbelievably destructive. In the 60s and 70s, there was one in Vietnam. In the 80s, there was one in Afghanistan. And none of that makes any sense at all if the animosity between the Soviets and the Americans was just a story to cover up a secret space program. Like, if the Cold War was a lie, it was a lie that they were super committed to. Moments after it went off air, Anglia TV starts getting phone calls. It starts, you know, the days after getting letters. A bunch of people write in saying, this was hilarious. We thought this was a great April Fool's joke. Others took a more serious approach and said, this is this shows the dangers of propaganda. Here right. you can see how easily... This was irresponsible, basically. Well, that's then the third group who mm -hmm. are like, this is really, you guys overstepped your bounds. This is not a joke. It's not funny. You can't do this stuff. But inevitably, some people also thought it was true. And that's a theme, I guess, for us today, is you make a joke or you, you perpetrate a hoax thinking, well, what's the harm? Mm -hmm. what, what's the problem here? I mean, I don't want to come across as some killjoy even though Nathan did start out the episode with, you know, I'm not feeling great. And, and I'm about to revisit that right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but still, I don't want to be just a wet blanket and say, well, you can't, you can't have a, you can't make fun of it. So anything. I will be a wet blanket. All right, yeah. all right. All right, so here's the thing. If you recall from the beginning of the episode, I said Lee was two kinds of set. He was worried about the natural environment because of the bees, but he was also worried about the information ecosystem. Because as information creatures, we operate in both environments. We have to live in the natural world, but we also live in a world of ideas. And those ideas that we're surrounded by shape how we understand the world. And also, they change what we think. They change how we act. Like, we are in two kinds of ecosystems. Yeah. So this is the other thing that you were sad about. You weren't just sad that our natural ecosystem was degrading. But you're terrified about the state of our information ecosystem. Because of the misinformation that circulates, the disinformation that circulates. We've talked about this before. Every little sort of bit of information is kind of like a little organism that you release out into the information ecosystem. And sometimes they die off and sometimes they do well. If they do well, people spread them to other people and more people believe them and it keeps going like that. And we've talked about disinformation organisms before. Something like uh, Operation Infection. Well, this was the KGB disinformation campaign that suggested the CIA deliberately created HIV AIDS in order to create a genocide. Yeah. And so that was put out. Not that the CIA hasn't gotten up to some unbelievably shady things, but that wasn't one of the incredibly shady things that they did. Yeah. That was a KGB disinformation campaign that was put out to try to wage the information war during the Cold War. So now the Cold War is theoretically done, but that information organism, that Operation Infection, it continues to survive and circulate and get spread and get believed by people. Yep. The original purpose for it is gone, but the organism out here in the ecosystem continues to circulate and reproduce. And mutate. And mutate and, and change and adapt to the environment. So I, I don't have immediate evidence for this, but I feel like this might have been part of the covid vaccine skepticism and those organisms do well in part because of the ecosystem that we've created like i can think of legit true horrifying medical scientific experiments that were done by governments right exactly the tuskegee syphilis experiment that was a real thing that really happened and so those disinformation organisms there's fertile ground for them to kind of spread around because we've already We've already learned it's like, well, no, but there are some real shady, sketchy things going on. Yeah. And that's what makes it so difficult. It might not have been such a successful information organism if it had remained just a TV documentary. Yeah, because, because back then it's, it's one and done. 
Exactly, it has a limited reach. But what happens right after is there's a, a literary agent by the name of Murray Pollinger who realizes the commercial potential for this and decides that what he wants to do is create a book version that essentially has the same thesis but fleshes it out a bit. He shops the idea around. He tries to get uh, the original creators, Ambrose and Miles, to write the book. They're not interested. They've moved on to other projects. And he finally comes across Leslie Watkins, who is, among other things, a journalist. He's like, sure, I'll do it. And according to an interview I watched with him, he bashed it out. Those were his words. He bashed it out in, you know, a couple of evenings. And you've read this book, and it feels bashed out. It is littered, and I mean littered with typos. Inexcusable typos. Uh, so here's an organism, here's an information organism, starts off as a fake documentary that gets broadcast on British TV, supposedly on April Fool's Day, but then it gets bumped, uh, with bad acting and bad special effects. And then it turns into a poorly written book with terrible editing. Right. This doesn't seem like an organism that's primed to do well in the ecosystem. Weird that, right? But then it's worth looking maybe at actual living organisms. And you look at a lot of those and you're like, how is that still alive? How did yeah. that ever survive It's true because millennia? It's, it's hard to predict yeah. what characteristics an organism is going to have. Like you would think, oh, like the biggest, toughest thing would survive in, out here in the wild. Sometimes it's some weird little scrawny thing. Right. So Leslie Watkins produces this book, Alternative 3. To some extent, it lifts directly from the documentary, but he also adds a lot of extra background material. Now, Nathan has in front of him a book, which it's inspired by Alternative 3. It's a criticism of Alternative 3. And it nonetheless participates in a lot of the same ideas with it. Yeah, the book I have in front of me, Jim Keith's Mind Control and UFOs Casebook on Alternative 3. It's an example of how these organisms continue to flourish. Because what's amazing about this book is that it's written from the perspective that the documentary is a hoax. Right. That the book that the documentary spawned is poorly written and also wrong. But despite the fact that the idea of Alternative 3 came from these two shady sources... Jim Keith is making the argument, ah, but the story is true. Right. Like, so these are bad versions of it, but the actual story itself is true. Yeah. And then he kind of spins off on that and connects it to every single other conspiracy theory that we've ever come across. Everything from the sinking of the Lusitania to MK Ultra to George Adamski getting, going for joyrides and flying saucers. Like, this book I have in front of me basically takes Alternative 3 and says... Everything is one giant conspiracy. And this is really the cultural impact of Alternative 3 is huge because it's used as evidence in so many subsequent conspiracy narratives, mostly UFO stuff, but not, in, not just UFO stuff, where Alternative 3, the book slash movie, is referenced as evidence for the fact that there is a vast global conspiracy where the government is hiding all this stuff about collaboration, alien ba or space bases, projects that we don't know about, setting up colonies on Mars. It's, it's, it has a huge cultural impact. Okay, but back to Leslie Watkins's Alternative 3, the book, this is now published in 1978. So the documentary comes out in 1977. The book is published in 1978. And it really, it, I think this is what makes the organism function well in the information ecosystem. Because again, I think the documentary would have been a flash in the pan. It would have died off. People would barely have remembered it. It would have been very difficult to get access to for a very long time until the internet got as big as it is now. And by then it would have been forgotten. Exactly. Whereas the book stuck around and it then starts getting some very serious supporters. Now, here's the thing. Here's where the story also gets a little more sinister because the documentary, while it was misunderstood by some people, was clearly a hoax and was intended as an April Fool's gag. Murray Pollinger and Leslie Watkins however, produce a book which they publish, market, and sell as a nonfiction book. So they're making the claim by saying that this book is nonfiction, you're saying this is true. 
Right. This is based on truth. You would not get Alternative 3 in the science fiction section of the bookstore. You wouldn't get it in the comedy section of the bookstore. You would get this in the politics section, the history section of a bookstore. There's an American AM talk show host who specializes in conspiracies in the 80s. Her name is Mae Brussel. And she gets a hold of Alternative 3 and is quite taken by it. So are many other people. The 8th Earl of Clancarty is a member of Parliament in England, is one of the aristocracy. Oh, he sounds like he's one of the aristocracy. Right? He, if you can see interviews with him. He looks like a member of the aristocracy. He's All very, jowls. Jowls, exactly, teeth. jowls. He gets a hold of Alternative 3, reads it, is completely convinced by it, is, in fact, writes to Leslie Watkins saying, I can't believe... I, you know, we knew that the CIA was into this kind of stuff, but we had no idea that Her Majesty's government was participating in it to such a degree. He even brings it up. He doesn't mention Alternative 3, but he even brings it up in the House of Parliament where he wants the government to reveal everything that they know about secret programs and stuff. So at so, this point, that organism is doing extremely well. Yeah, so it's getting its proponents. There are people who are really going to bat for this. I was talking about Mae Brussel, and she in the States is another one. Now, she's not a member of parliament. She's not part of uh, any kind of aristocracy. And yet she has a radio program, and she's talking about a lot of conspiratorial stuff and is really interested in the thesis of this book. But she also gets suspicious. She starts to wonder if this actually is legit or not and decides, because we're in the pre-internet age, to write a letter to the publisher. And she asks, you're selling this as a non-fiction book. Can you confirm for me that this is non-fiction? She writes a letter to the publishing house, who know full well that this is a work of fiction. Leslie Watkins was commissioned to write a work of fiction. At first, his response was, Science fiction is not my scene. I don't know much about it, so he didn't want to do it. But then he, you know, he, he does do it. So there's no doubt anywhere. Murray Pollinger was inspired by the documentary. He's a literary agent. He was inspired by the documentary. He's like, this has got legs. We're going to make money off of this. So everybody at the publishing house, they know full well that this is a work of fiction. But the letter that they send to May Brussel is... Sorry, we can't answer. We can't help you with your questions. We can't answer this. Now, is that a sinister reason why they're doing that, or is it just a strictly financial reason? I think it's a cash grab. Yeah, I think that they are making more money. I mean, this is a terrible book. This is a just a just a, a really badly written book with a not very even as science fiction. It's a not a very interesting read. Yeah. So if it is a fiction, people will be like, well, this is a bad fiction. But if it's nonfiction, it's super important and people should buy it. Exactly. So this is a way in which then Leslie Watkins, too, who I've seen interviews with him where he comes out and he says, clearly, this was always fiction. Nobody could possibly take this seriously. That's what also the producers of the Anglia TV documentary said. They were like, Look, the viewers of this show are going to know that it's fiction. And of course, many of them did, but some were convinced by it. And now we can see why this organism survives. Yeah. It's got a bunch of aspects that we've seen in other successful information organisms. We have a mix of spreaders here. We've got some true believers who legit think this is true and are concerned, because if this was true, this would be extremely concerning. So we've got those people in the mix. Also in the mix, we've got the scammers, the opportunists, who take advantage of those true believers by putting out stuff like this Jim Keith book, which tried to like catapult off this original organism and keep it going and add new things to it. And we also have a situation where this is coming out in the 70s and 80s. We've already talked about the fact that in the 70s and 80s, we had gotten more used to the idea that our government was up to some just absolute nonsense because of what had been exposed in the 70s with COINTELPRO, MK That's Ultra, right. Project Sea Spray, yeah. the Vietnam War, Watergate. And so I can see why this silly documentary and this poorly written book are now contributing to an organism that's starting to do really well. 
And in those conspiratorial communities, we have other stuff going on that also maps onto that. In our previous episode, we talked about the MJ-12 documents and their revelation. We talked about Doty and his disinformation campaign against Benowitz. And so again, if you're swimming in this soup, getting a book like this, it's just more evidence that in fact, you're on the right track and something really shady has gone down. Yeah. This is the environment in which Alternative 3 is breeding and evolving, to use your biological metaphor. Another person who starts referencing this is Bill Cooper. Yeah, William Cooper is one of these really crucial people in the the formation of what we think of as conspiracy theory. Cooper wrote a book called Behold a Pale Horse, which was unbelievably influential in the 90s, not just in the world of conspiracy, but in like pop culture, in hip hop. It's amazing how often that book is referenced in uh, hip hop songs of the 90s. And we need to talk about his particular brand of paranoia because it is such an encapsulation of where conspiracy theory starts to go. Because what we have in the 90s is a kind of a merging of different conspiratorial scenes, which in the 70s and 80s are kind of distinct subcultures who all share an underlying suspicion that there is something more going on than we are being told about that we are allowed to know. But these, so you have the the militia movements on the one hand, you have the alien UFO scene on the other you have other groups as well. You've got Illuminati groups. You've got exactly. secret shadow governments. You've got black helicopters. You've got... And all of this starts to merge together in the 90s. And Bill into like Cooper... A, into like a super conspiracy. Exactly. And Bill and Cooper is one... one of the foundational fathers of the super conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. He's a big synthesizer mm-hmm. of these ideas. Now, we're going to save episodes for him in the future. That, that, that's still coming. That's where we're trying to get to. This point, I just wanted to now branch away from the the history of Alternative 3 in the 80s and talk about just the impact that this kind of literature, can I call it that? Certainly not scholarship, but this kind of, is it a joke? I don't know. Like, what? it's a scam, it's a joke, it's a hoax, it's a little bit of fun, but it's also a cash grab. It... For, I think for those people who are perpetrating it, including Leslie Watkins, I don't think that they see it as particularly dangerous. So again, here we have something that was based as a fiction, as a bit of a hoax, or just as a bit of a lark. And then as time goes on, people start to think it's more and more real, and it builds up an entire kind of literature about it. And then the weight of that literature makes it seem like it's real, even though if you look at what underlies all of it, it's based on this fiction. Do you know what this reminds me of that we were talking about very recently? Atlantis. Oh, yes. It's it's the same thing as Atlantis. Plato comes up with Atlantis as a way of talking about his political theories, not as an actual history of a place that existed, but as, here, I'm going to come up with a fictional place so I can teach a lesson about the importance of morality and politics. Right. But then as the years go by, people People... forget it's a fiction, and then an entire body of literature is built up around Atlantis. So then when you look into it, you're like, well, there's thousands of books on Atlantis and documentaries and all right. these things. It must have been real. Look at the weight of all of this writing about it. Exactly, exactly. But if um, you go back to the beginning, and that's what we often do, is go to the beginning of something and say, okay, but where did it start? And that's why that kind of historical analysis is really helpful. I know that I'm misquoting this somewhat. It's a paraphrase, but it reminds me of the Irish literary theorist Terry Eagleton, who talked about a myth is a story that has forgotten its past. Yeah. And I think that's a paraphrase, and any fault of the misquoting is obviously mine, but I, it's somewhat along those lines, and I think that is a really true way of thinking about mythologies to some extent, is that they are stories that take themselves for real because they've forgotten their origin. Yeah, and if we're doing this in 20 years, we'll be doing an episode on the birds aren't real hoax. Well, I was going to say that, because often... I have toyed with the idea in class of creating a fake conspiracy with my students. 
one that we would somehow publish on the internet in order to see where would something like this go. Right, so, you're going to create an organism and release it. Yeah, and then, and then see what happens in the ecosystem. And then you could say to these students who maybe would follow this for years afterwards, you know, look, this is how these things are generated. And, and we know for sure that we created something that wasn't true. And you could watch it as it changes and mutates and sort of adapts to a right? situation. And it, it sounds like an interesting idea. But, but exactly. Well, the thing that's held me back is a worry that once you release an organism like this into the environment, you have lost control of it, and now it might mutate in all kinds of ways. And so Nathan referenced birds aren't real. And this was a fake conspiracy. That is to say that the author of it created it as a hoax. To point out the ridiculousness of conspiracy. Right. And uh, he got a lot of people. So the, the conspiracy says that uh, the CIA killed off living birds in the 1950s. And all birds that we have seen since then are listening devices. They are um, not actual living organisms. They are manufactured drones that are just CIA listening devices. They're not real. And that's why they perch on hydro wires. They're recharging. <laughs> so the author of this conspiracy does not actually believe this. He, he's, he set it up as a, as a criticism of conspiratorial culture. And a lot of the people who are into it don't believe it. But as Nathan says, what does this look like in 20, 30, 50 years? Will we have conspiracy theorists in the future referencing the fact that this, they have evidence that the CIA killed off all living birds in the 1950s and replaced them with listening devices. The author has lost control of that conspiracy in a way, and I'm not sure if it will have that effect of critiquing things in the future once you've lost the fact that it was a critique to begin with, because that's what Alternative 3 was in a sense. It wasn't really a critique, but it was a hoax. But we've forgotten that it was a hoax, and now it seems to be quite serious. Yeah, and that brings us to the, the consequences, I think. What are the consequences of something like this? You never know what the consequences are going to be. Like, th this wasn't the last time, even in British television, that we saw something like this. We saw a hoax that was kind of put forward as something real, as an actual documentary, which was completely made up and fabricated. In the early 1990s, the BBC put out something called Ghostwatch. Okay. And they put it out on Halloween. And it is, I mean, this was before like fake documentary movies. Okay. Things like Blair Witch Project or Cloverfield. I mean, now it's just a, a style of film that we're very used to seeing. Right. For, for one thing, it's cheap to make. Well, I feel like Spinal Tap had come out, but that was really unique as being something that nobody else had done. It was, it was really, I guess, one of the first of these fake documentaries. Yeah, and a classic. It was good. So here's how Ghostwatch works. You have announcers who viewers would have been very familiar with. These are BBC announcers, like Michael Parkinson, one of the most famous BBC announcers. Okay. And he says, okay, we're going to have this show. We're going to go to a haunted house live. We're going to cut to some talking heads, and we're going to discuss the nature of ghosts, and it's going to be a fun evening. And so they send out the reporters live to this haunted house, interviewing the family, talking about the ghosts that they've seen, and then they cut to talking heads, explaining why the whole thing is nonsense. But as the show goes on, weirder and weirder things start happening at this live feed of the house, and it gets creepier and creepier. As part of it, they said they were also having a call-in show. And so they would cut away and take in live calls. Now, all of the live calls were actors. Of course, the whole thing was set up. Okay. But the people calling in started saying, first of all, they're like, wait, in that footage of the house, I thought I saw something creepy in the corner. And then people start calling in and saying, hey, there's creepy things happening at my house as I'm uh -huh. watching this documentary. Right. And so the idea was that as this documentary went on, they were accidentally unleashing this horrifying ghost nicknamed Pipes because he always sounded like pipes knocking. Uh -huh. By the end of this, the ghost has taken over the TV studio and a lot of the BBC reporters have been like possessed by it. And the footage has gone all screwy and people are calling in and screaming saying like, my house is haunted now and this and that. Yeah. It's actually pretty good and pretty effective. Yeah. But obviously the whole thing was a hoax with actors. Right. But then after it aired, thousands of calls come in because people were terrified. 
there were examples of children being diagnosed with PTSD after watching it. Wow. And tragically, there was one person who became obsessed with ghosts after watching the show, thinking it was real, mm -hmm. took his own life, and according to the note that he left, it was so that he could become a ghost. Aye, aye, aye. So you don't know. You don't know what people are going to believe. In 2012, the Discovery Channel, which is supposed to be a science cha channel, right. they put out a documentary on mermaids. Okay. And again, the whole thing was faked, and it was yeah. all CGI, and it was all ridiculous. But I had students coming in that week saying, sir, did you hear mermaids are real things? Right. This is, the, this is one of the problems with doing this. Now, I don't believe this, but let me play devil's advocate here and say, okay, but we are in a complex media landscape and people got to wise up, you know, like stop believing stuff you watch on TV, stop being a sucker. And obviously I don't want people to get hurt, but playing this devil's advocate, it's like, okay, you know, not anybody's fault, but that person. I would argue that there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing. Uh, I get very uncomfortable when I see like a mainstream news commentator in a movie playing themselves. Okay. Like that just seems like a bad idea. Uh -huh. and, and this is something that's becoming increasingly Is it because common. you're just a killjoy and don't like humor? I mean, that's definitely part of it. <laughs> But another part of it is that we live in a media landscape in this ecosystem where it's going to become increasingly difficult to tell the difference between what's true and what's made up. We have seen, for example, there was footage recently of, this is being recorded in 2023, there was footage that convinced a bunch of people of the former president Donald Trump being arrested and running through the streets. Okay. That didn't happen. Okay. But there was footage of it. Because now we can create footage of things that did not happen, and we can do it quick, and we can do it easy, and we can do it cheap. Yeah. And it's only going to become more and more and more convincing. Yeah. So I think looking back to something like Alternative 3, it shows us where this can go. Alternative 3 had terrible special effects and, and really hilarious acting. Yeah. And still, decades later, people are convinced that this was a real thing, and it continues to influence the lives of people. I think of this very much in the divide of The Amazing Randy and Yuri Geller. So both of them are magicians, but Yuri Geller claims to have actual psychic abilities. Now, he does stage magic, the spoon bending that he does. You can, you can learn how to do it on YouTube or The Amazing Randy will show you. These are stage magic tricks. Some of them are close-up magic tricks. But Yuri Geller pretends, he says, no, no, I have psychic ability. The Amazing Randy, James Randy, does the same tricks and he does other tricks and he's a professional stage magician. Now he will say, I don't have any special abilities. I am a stage magician. Both forms of entertainment are entertaining. I think it is just as entertaining when somebody says, listen, this is a trick and then you still can't figure it out and you still are surprised by it. So I don't know if anything is added to the entertainment value when we say, oh, this could be real. No, but from a marketing perspective, it's very useful, unfortunately. Is it? Is it? Well, I mean, think back to the, the publishers I mean, who didn't want to admit that this thing was fiction. Is well, it nonfiction or fiction? It's like, well, I don't know. Right. Because it's going to sell better as nonfiction. Well, and Yuri Geller made a lot more money than James Randi ever did. And James Randi was never invited by the CIA and the Air Force to train them how to use telekinesis. Right. Whereas Yuri Geller was. Right. So it, it does pay better. That's true. And, and I guess maybe that's the problem is that we're dealing with businesses and that's what they're in the market to do. But there is a responsibility to say when you, when you publish something as nonfiction, that is clearly a piece of fiction. Like it's clearly a piece of fiction. Alternative 3 is a piece of fiction, but it was published as nonfiction. Yuri Geller knows he's doing stage magic, but he claims he's an actual psychic. And the Discovery Channel knows that there's no mermaids, or the producers will know that there's no mermaids. And yet they pretend that, well, possibly, maybe. I think this is the same problem we run into with the ancient alien stuff on the History Channel, which is this sense that, well, potentially there could be, we don't know, we don't know everything, so maybe it was, in fact, aliens who built the pyramids. I think that's really irresponsible and doesn't make the story any better. And I think that 
Mae Brussel is the, she was the one we referenced earlier, who was this talk show, radio talk show host, who herself was curious to find out, is it or is it not fiction? I think she describes a lot of the positions that many of us are in. You know, when you're, if you're a kid, or I don't know, if you're just somebody curious and you're watching the stuff on the History Channel, on the Discovery Channel, you're listening to serious reporters you otherwise trust say, well, potentially there's something here. I think that really makes things complicated and, and, and it's hard for us to know what's real as a result. And here's the other thing, is that there are real conspiracies. Yeah. There are some terrifying conspiracies. There are some weird, messed up conspiracies. There are things that people in power have gotten away with secretly and yeah. manipulated things behind the scenes. Yeah. That has happened. Yeah. And if you're trying to figure out what those things are, it becomes a lot more difficult in like an immense room full of noise. Right. And these false fictional conspiracy theories generate so much noise that they can bury the real legit things that are going on. Right. That's interesting because Leslie Watkins peppers the beginning of his book with references to MK Ultra, to Dr. Frank Olson, to other kinds, to Midnight Climax. All um, real things. All, all real things. Weird, messed up things. Weird, messed up things that really happened. So I agree with you that it adds a lot of noise by then mixing in these fake conspiracies as part of it. I think it also delegitimates the real ones. Yeah. Where, and this is something that Nathan and I always come up against, even with the authors that we rely on and really like, is they often refer to conspiracy theories as synonymous with a misunderstanding of reality. That, you know, there's reality and then there are quote-unquote conspiracy theories and they're always wrong. But they're not always wrong. And I think when we mix in this nonsense with the real ones, we don't know what's what anymore. Nobody does. And so those people who are into conspiracy theories get confused about which ones are real. Those people who aren't think they're all nonsense. And nobody knows what's going on as a result. Yeah. And there's a lot of good and honest people who are trying to figure out what's yeah. going on. And a lot of people who are interested in conspiracies, that's what they are. They're good, honest people who exactly. have a feeling that something isn't exactly the way they've been told, which yeah. is true. Yeah. But then they're they're confronted with all of this stuff that a lot of it comes from opportunistic scammers. Yeah. And we've come across a lot of that over the last few years about how much the conspiracy field has been poisoned by these ripoff artists. Right. And I guess alternative three is just one more example of that. It's very frustrating. Yeah. And it's going to come up a lot more as we move into the 90s now. Yeah. Because and it's, it's, it's... And this stuff, it can get people killed. Oh, yeah. The consequences are real. The consequences are scary. But what I find really interesting moving forward is that this thing that most of us have never heard of, well, certainly Nathan and I hadn't heard of it before we started uh, doing a deep dive on the history of UFO lore. This is going to end up being another piece of evidence for all the future conspiracies that we're about to embark on for the for the next set of our UFO suite. When things get even grimmer. <laughs> okay.